Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. From MaximumFun.org and NPR, it's Bullseye. Charlie Day is the star and co-creator of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. You probably know that already because at this point, Always Sunny is the longest-running live-action comedy in the history of television. A person born during the show's first season can now get a driver's license. And what's crazy is, Always Sunny is still good. The show's main characters, Charlie, Mac, Dennis, Dee, and Frank, are still immoral, self-sabotaging doofuses, and our lives are all the richer for it. But Charlie Day, the actor, is more than just Charlie from Always Sunny. He helped co-create the very funny TV show Mythic Quest, He acted in movies like Pacific Rim, Horrible Bosses, and The Lego Movie, and now he's the star of I Want You Back. I Want You Back is a romantic comedy. Charlie plays Peter. When the movie begins, Peter has been dumped by his longtime girlfriend, and he's feeling pretty crummy about it. Then he meets Emma, played by Jenny Slate. Emma was also dumped by her longtime partner, and she's also feeling crummy about it. In a typical rom-com, you'd probably have guessed the next move here. Emma and Peter fall in and out of love, but eventually realize they're meant to be together. Possibly one of them owns a cupcake place. In I Want You Back, though, they conspire. Peter and Emma develop a plan to win back their exes the only way they know how. Each of them will sabotage the new relationship of the other's ex. It's like strangers on a train, but instead of murder emotional warfare. Let's hear a clip from the film. In this scene, Peter and Emma meet each other for the first time. They've both just been dumped. They're crying in a stairwell in an office building. And before long, they get to talking. Anna and I were together for six years. Holy Yeah, I know. And I wanted to get married, have kids, all that. Mm. But, uh, you know, she wanted to be an artist and I guess drink wine with some Water in a Fonzie jacket. I really don't know what... Noah wants a woman who owns a pie shop. I love pie. (laughs) I'm sorry I just said that. I probably shouldn't have said that. School never loves pie. Pie's actually not that great. It's very... There's very limited options when it comes to pie. Okay. (sighs) This was awkward. Very. Charlie, it's so great to have you on Bullseye. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you for coming. I'm excited to be here. I guess by coming, I mean coming to your own home. Well, yeah, I made it all the way to my little side office here, and I got the Zoom set up, so. You look like a million dollars. Are you a romantic comedy person? Some people are very intense about them. I wouldn't say I'm intense about them, but um, I enjoy them. I I enjoy, you know, I think I really enjoy uh, the Tom Hanks ones, and um Obviously, um, when Harry met Sally, I like a romantic storyline in a movie, whether it's a romantic comedy or not. And I, I'm kind of a sucker for the the Nancy Myers uh, rom coms. I, I 
I, I always go in thinking, well, it's not maybe for me. And I always wind up saying I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought you have in this film a very nice uh, romantic comedy job. You know, there's a lot of goofs about what jobs people have in romantic comedies, which are very almost like ritualized, you know, it's like mm. magazine editors and cupcake makers and all those, you know, architect is the dudes are always architects. Right. And, <laughs> and your character uh, works for uh, a company that runs senior citizens homes about which job he is kind of, uh, he's kind of ambivalent despite really liking old people. And I thought that was a nice, a, a nice thing for someone to do in a romantic comedy. I certainly thought it was original when I read it, which I thought, gosh, I never read like a character who aspired to open his own retirement home, you know? And um, I thought it was rootable. And uh, pretty much this whole script, when I when I got sent it and I read it, caught me off guard with how sort of grounded and relatable it was, which was, I think, the most appealing factor to me, which is... I always wanted to do a romantic comedy, but I wanted to do the good version of one. And, um, you know, each, each page I turned and kept reading, I thought, oh gosh, this is a real guy. And, you know, he has real wants and they're relatable and they're rootable and, and same with the uh, Jenny's character. So yeah, it's a funny job to have, I guess, for, for a movie, but I really enjoyed it. Is rootable a term of art? Like, is that something that comes in the coverage of a script. Yeah, it's a terrible term, but uh, rootable. Yeah, rootable, relatable. The worst is likable, but uh, I think rootable is better. You know, you're rooting for You don't have to like them, but do you root for the character? You've played a lot of characters who are either profoundly dim-witted, um, you know, for, <laughs> <laughs> for decades now on Always Sunny, you've played a character so dim-witted that it's, it seems impossible that he lives in the in like he's able to put pants on <laughs> or a lot of characters who are bright, but like mostly would like run into a room with their hair messed up, waving a stack of papers. <laughs> like I found it. That's right. A white, yeah, yeah. A lunatic. <laughs> um, uh, was, uh, was doing something that was grounded and relatable, uh, aspirational for you for that reason. It was. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I I was so relieved reading the story to say, oh, he he never, you know, he's never crazy and ranting and raving about anything. And uh, I think <laughs> it, that's something Jason, Jason too, I think, uh, had said to me. He's like, you know, I really want to do a performance of yours where we, net, you, where we don't really see you in that frantic state that we're maybe used to. It's funny. I remember, I can't remember what movie it was or what project where I was doing something. I was like, I'm always a person in an extreme situation. Uh, I guess that's good storytelling, right? Take, take an average person, put them in an extreme situation, then hopefully comedy comes out of that. But um, yeah, it was nice to play a, a slightly more reasonable human being in this, in this movie. <laughs> at what point did you realize you were good at ranting and raving? Because you really, <laughs> like, one of the reasons that you do it a lot is because you're extraordinarily good at it. Well, that's nice of you to say. I, I'm never attempting to be good at ranting or raving. I'm simply ranting or raving as the character is meant to be. And then people seem to find it amusing. For me, For me, it's always really real. I think I remember, I can't remember, maybe it was doing Pacific Rim where I remember doing it and just feeling as though I played it 
real, you know, played, this is the character, this is his passion, this is what he cares about, this is what he's upset about. And then having someone come up to me and say, oh, you were so funny in that. And I remember remember (laughs) thinking, well, I wasn't trying, I wasn't trying remotely to be funny. Um, But I also recognize that that's, uh, you know, I have a, I'm thankful that I have a career that people are <laughs> amused by my, um, I mean, you know, when I'm stressed or whatever it is, they find it funny. Uh, it, like that's a high class problem, I guess. Did you aspire to be an actor as a kid? I knew I liked it. The few times that I'd done school plays or, or gotten a laugh from an audience, I, you know, I, I recognized that it was something that, felt natural to me. It, you know, it, it wasn't like math or reading a book, which <laughs> felt, felt like I really had to work at it. Um, or sports, which I, I spent a lot of time doing, but you know, I always felt like I had to convince people that, you know, to put me on the team versus, uh, acting seemed to come more naturally, but I don't know that I thought about people having careers as actors. You know, I was growing up in, Rhode Island, and I didn't know anyone who did that, and that was a different thing. You know, the movie star was was, uh, or even just a working day to day actor was an unattainable, different thing. It wasn't until I was in college that I, I thought, oh well, you know, maybe I could, maybe I can make a living of this. It's funny. I was thinking about the fact that. Um, correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, and I misread this somewhere or something like that. But both of your parents have PhDs, and they're both in music. And I, I thought that um, I thought what if what a funny thing for an actor to grow up with, not because it's music and acting and they're so different, but rather just because to have two parents who are both artists in literally the most like practical and serious uh, way that you could possibly be an artist, which is like music theory, you know what I mean? And like, (laughs) and like academic music theory, like even more than like, if your parents were, you know, I have a friend who used to play the piano at Nordstrom for a while. Um, (laughs) And like, that's a pretty practical music job, but like PhDs in music theory is the most like yeah. serious, sincere, practical thing you could possibly do in the arts. Yeah, my parents were academics. You know, I didn't really perceive them as artists. You know, I, they were educators. They were teachers. Yeah, and sp- had spent their lives learning and then their lives after learning teaching. So um, to me, music seemed like a, a horrible thing where <laughs> – <laughs> you had to have your nose in a book all day long and then you know it's it's not very lucrative um you only learned about jazz when you were 26 yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly and then you I, accidentally I, stumbled into a smoky club and that's right i think you know i think my parents never made it past beethoven all the way to jazz i rebelled against it and school was not something that came natural to me i struggled in school um and I think, uh, yeah, I think as a result, the idea of going into music or anything like that seemed like I wanted to get as far away from it as possible. But um, you know, now looking back on it, I wish I wish I had a PhD in something. I think that'd be pretty great. I have an honorary one, which is a bunch of crap, but um, it's fun to have. 
Still pretty good. You and Maya Angelou, right? And Kermit the Frog. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson, too, I believe. So I'm keeping good company. More with Charlie Day in just a minute. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Charlie Day. Along with Rob McElhenney and Glenn Howerton, he created and stars in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. That has officially become the longest-running live-action sitcom in the history of television. Charlie is also a movie actor. He's starring alongside Jenny Slate in the brand-new romantic comedy I Want You Back. It's streaming this week on Amazon Prime. Let's get back into our conversation. Let's talk about Always Sunny in Philadelphia for a minute. Please, please. Always Sunny is a show that came out of the three stars, including you, like making stuff yourself in a time before that was how TV shows, where TV shows came from. <laughs> like maybe yeah. f- three or four years before that was where TV shows came from. But like in 2003 or whatever, and when you guys started goofing around together and, and making videos, that wasn't how you got a television show. So how did the three of you in a, like an apartment building in Hollywood or whatever become a television pitch? Well, you're, you're right. That's not certainly how it was done, but it, it, it was how things have been done. You know, if you're Quentin Tarantino, you, raise the money to put together reservoir dogs, or maybe he shot a short of reservoir dogs first, or, you know, any, any filmmaker usually goes that route. It just hadn't been done for television. And I think we initially were making what could have been a 30 minute Sundance short, but we realized it felt like it, we could make it episodic and that it could be like a television show. And so we, we wound up pitching it as that, but um, I think it was beneficial for us that it was before YouTube became big. So we had no outlet, right? We were here. We are, we're off. We're making something with nowhere to put it. So we had to find a home for it. And the home just happened to be on television. And yeah. And some of that, it was maybe just right time, right place. It's hard to know exactly, but yeah, that's it. I was watching some of the videos. Some of the videos that you guys made are on YouTube now, speaking of YouTube. And I was watching them, and the vibe is a lot more like, um, I mean, it's the time too, but the vibe is more like British office which is to say that it has a kind of, like the discomfort is kind of more quiet and sad. Yeah. <laughs> well, that absolutely was our inspiration, you know. Um, both the British office and Curb Your Enthusiasm had a lo-fi look to them uh, that really was so it's the it's documentary style filmmaking, right? Some it's a handheld camera; it's it's doing this sort of punch-in zooms, you know, things, and it's very loose. It's cross-covered, and for a young filmmaker, that seems attainable, right? You you don't have a you know, it's not boogie nights. You don't have a, a a steady cam shot that goes underwater and then comes back up. And you know, this is 
You know, like this is something. <laughs> there's, no, there's no stuff you're cribbing from Soy Cuba. Yeah, this is yeah, this is stuff that we can actually. Share. It's not Jurassic Park, you know. There's no CG dinosaurs. These are just people in awkward situations, and the camera is covering both. And plus, we just love the style of the humor. I think it was very of that time, but it also just appealed to us. So it felt doable. We thought, well, we could at least do that. We could just get our hands on. And there also there was the timing of of the technology becoming more attainable. You know, as we didn't have a giant camera, we had a uh, we had a good camera. It was a Panasonic DVX one hundred A, which was a nice little handheld camera that shot in twenty four P. So it had a great look to it. So we were able to almost create the same look as those shows, just on our own. You know, no lighting, just just these cameras and uh, some funny, awkward scenarios and cross cover it and, and uh, off you go. I have watched Always Sunny since the, since the start. And thank um, you. Uh, hey, just no sweat off my back. I love that. And from the start, I wondered why I liked and rooted for these horrible monsters because all of the <laughs> all of your characters like it's not like one non-monster surrounded by monsters like maybe your character has the least evil intent sure. of any of the characters i yeah, would say but they're all monsters um, <laughs> right why why do you like and root for them yeah i don't know i don't know i mean I don't you know. just you used like... the word rootable, e- rootable. earlier they're so rootable, you're, yeah. you're obliged to do a breakdown here okay why are these guys rootable well why is tony soprano rootable you know i don't know that you're necessarily rooting for them uh well I, there's a fine line right they they're 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 terrible people, but you understand their motivation. I think this is the key to why it works, but who knows? You understand their motivation, and their motivation is so self-centered that it's blind to their terrible behavior. And so you can find that funny. Now, if their motivation was not blind to their terribleness, it would be, it, they'd be less funny. You'd be like, well, now they're just being awful, and they know they're being awful. It's the fact that they're unaware of how awful they're being, I think, that, you know, that makes it funny. Now, why you root for them, that's a that's a, that's another sort of level to it, because I don't know why. Because they are, you know, truly despicable, but they don't win. You know, we they never win in the end. So maybe you're rooting for them to win despite their – maybe we recognize that we all have – awful parts of ourselves. And so we say, well, maybe we all still deserve a win. I'm not, look, I don't know. I'm talking to you through a video conferencing window. I have a close up of your face here in, in my shot. Mm-hmm. As you were answering that question, you were gazing out the window a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, I root for you because of the twinkle and those beautiful peepers of yours. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe that's it. We, I, we recognize that everyone has a soul and even evil and complicated people, you know, have a spirit and a soul and and we root for it, you know, in our shared humanity. Cause I find them rootable and like, there's not, they do no 
they do no, they save no cats. No cats are saved yeah. <laughs> through the entire 15 years the show's been on the air. No, not a cat has been I saved. I don't think, I think Glenn once read Save the Cat, but uh, no, I think uh, we don't know how to save cats on our show for sure. Let's hear a scene from the show, uh, Always Sunny in Philadelphia. And my guest, uh, Charlie Day, has been working on that program for its entire run, which is uh, now 15 seasons. Uh, and this is from the fourth season. Uh, Charlie and Mac, uh, one of the creators of the show, Rob McElhenney, have uh, been hired to work in a mail room. Uh, and Charlie, who the show has established is semi-literate at best, um, and is really just driven by his own peculiar mania and a healthy dose of, of charm, is in charge of sorting the mail can't handle it, and he has created a system for sorting the mail based on how important it is. Dude, what's going on in here? Yeah. Oh, I'm really behind the eight ball, Mac. The mail doesn't stop, bud. You're smoking now? Uh, yeah, I'm smoking now. Are you kidding me? My nerves are like... So I'm trying to smoke. I'm trying to calm myself down. And hey, we got insurance, so what the hell? Have a smoke. Yeah, maybe you're right, because I, I need to calm my nerves a bit, dude. It's a shark tank up there. Oh, yeah? Is it? I bet. Have some coffee, too. That'll calm you down. Yeah. What's your system here, bro? Oh, it's pretty complicated. The mail goes into three sections according to how important I think the thing looks, okay? Now, the least important stuff, I'm going to burn that. If it's important, they're going to send it again, right? <laughs> the middle important stuff, I put that back in the mail addressed to me, so I buy myself a couple more days. And the most important stuff, that gets delivered. A little, you know, something back. I actually burn that, too, most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really classic Charlie moment in that I imagine that at the beginning of a, the planning of a new season of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, when there's all those television writer index cards with mm -hmm. things written on them and bulletin boards and stuff, like, and, and stories are being broken. Like, every episode just has a, an index card with a question mark that says, Charlie's scheme? Question mark. <laughs> <laughs> I think most of our index cards, I, I would not be comfortable saying uh, on the air here, but <laughs> yeah, we usually have some horrible things up there that we think, oh, that would be an interesting subject matter. I, I, I think that one had to do with, uh, yeah, just health insurance, which, you know, <laughs> naturally, naturally, I mean, health why insurance wouldn't that yeah, grow leads from to sort of smoking and madness, but that I hadn't heard that, that clip, you know, the, the, it's the next scene where Matt comes back down and I've, uh, really sort of lost my mind and I kept, keep getting these letters and they're all addressed to this guy named Pepe Silvia, which the fans have sort of theorized that is my misreading of the word Pennsylvania. But, um, uh, and then I've, I'm hallucinating and stuff, but that, that they've made a, you know, a meme, uh, you know, like a little image it's everywhere of, of me just sort of at the conspiracy theory board, they're losing my mind. I, our, the show is so funny in terms of you never know what's going to take off or why it's going to, you know, grab the audience. But that particular scene wound up uh, touching a nerve, I, maybe because it's very funny. Um, I remember that speech being written by a guy named uh, Rob Roselle and his writing partner, partner uh, Scott Martyr. And um, just knowing that, you know, coming to set being like, oh, boy, I get to sink my teeth into this one. It's going to be a lot of fun. So the first season of Always Sunny in Philadelphia was very funny, but it was when FX was not the juggernaut that it is today. And it had some notable successes. The Shield was a big success early on for FX. 
previously, of course, it had been television served fresh daily. Uh, the right. all the all live shows network it was for a while. Uh, I think they had a live antiques roadshow type show. I remember. <laughs> I think they also had Son of the Beach or Son of a Son of oh, a Beach. Yeah, a- yeah, like a blue uh, parody uh, thing. Um, the so FX was sort of finding its footing as a purveyor of high quality television. It was that was new? That was a new idea at FX, relatively. And not that many people watched Always Sunny in the first season. And um, the head of FX happened to be friends and former colleagues with Danny DeVito and suggested to you, maybe if we added Danny DeVito to the show, people might check it out. Um, I have to say that like as, as wonderful as Danny DeVito has always been in everything he's ever been in, I mean, nobody could watch Taxi and not think he's a genius. Um, or watch Matilda and not think he's a genius. But like, it was weird when I first saw those promos. <laughs> I was like, wait, Danny DeVito is going to be on that show? Yeah. <laughs> like that weird show with four people I've never heard of in my yeah. life. It was weird for <laughs> <that> us. I... <laughs> well, I, you know, the FX had had a hit with um, The Shield and they had had a big ratings uh, bump when they had gotten Glenn Close to do an arc on it. Um, so that was sort of the idea behind it, which was that they said, look, we really like this show you guys are making. Nobody's watching it. Uh, we got to get more people watching it. Um, we were doing it so cheaply that it really, it it was not a big risk for them to bring us back. And yeah, they, they, you know, had pitched Danny to us and we're thought, well, yeah, okay, we'll take, sure. Danny DeVito. That's fine. I, I think actually we had the arrogance of thinking, well, I don't know, that might uh, ruin the show. And not because Danny's uh, not great, but because it would be out of balance. You know, it's um, so it was. That's what was weird about. It. I mean, obviously Danny DeVito's great. We can stipulate that. Yeah. But four dudes you've never, uh, th- three dudes and a lady you've never heard of, and then also movie star and uh, like acclaimed film producer Danny DeVito. Well, I, I remember once he signed on, that that was sort of weighing on me, which was that how do we work this guy into the show without it suddenly feeling like a gimmick or a stunt and and in a sense ruining the show. And I remember going and just... I must've been DVDs at the time, but like renting every DVD of everything Danny had ever done and sitting and watching it all. And then I remember getting to like the restaurant scene and get shorty where he's ordering for everyone. It was a different color for Danny. I hadn't, I didn't really know as much as the sort of just like Louis De Palma guy. And he's so good in so many things. I remember having this thought and I remember thinking if I can't make Danny DeVito super funny on the show, then that only means that I am a terrible writer and have no business doing this. So the problem is nothing to do with this big star coming on the show and everything to do with my own ability to work this guy in. And and when I say me, I mean Robin Glenn as well. And then, of course, you know, it worked great and I cannot ever imagine doing the show without him. Um, and I'm just so grateful that he decided to do it. And I've just loved working with him so much. And I really think he hasn't gotten the credit for the work that he's done on the show. I mean, he has done some extraordinarily funny stuff and some just great 
all around acting. And it was transformative, not only to the show, but to my life. I think just getting to be friends with Danny and learning so much from him, not only on set, but off set in terms of just how he's carried his life and himself and his in the world and with fans. And he was a great mentor and role model and friend and partner. And um, thank God he wanted to do the show. One of the things about Danny DeVito as an artist, right, is he has these obvious gifts, which are he has one of the funniest voices ever, which is why he's a voice actor in everything. And he's he has the like the most distinctive look of any like funny comedy actor of the last thirty years. You know what I mean? Like you you see Danny DeVito and you're like, oh, I wonder what this guy's going to be up to. Yeah. You know what I mean? But he's also like a notably accomplished behind the scenes person as a director and a producer and so on and so forth. Absolutely right. And I think the main thing that I wondered when he came on to your show was, like, above all else, why would he want to do this? Like, what would he be getting? Like, are they paying him? Like, this is a this is like a dinky show. They can't possibly be paying him so much money that that's why he's doing it. I'm like... <laughs> I think there's something to, and I could see this for myself, which is that I think when Danny came onto our show, he was in his early 60s, in my mid-40s now. And I think when I get to my 60s, I would really like to work with someone who's who guys who are in their 20s and early 30s and are really passionate and excited about what they're doing. Because I think you... You, that's who you want to work with. You know, I think you don't only want to work with the older established guys who, who have figured out what they're doing. And they're like, the best stuff is usually born out of that. A, you have the drive to prove something and B, you don't know everything yet. So you're free to make these sort of mistakes and accidents that aren't overthought or overplanned. So, you know, I think Danny had the good business sense to say, well, first of all, to watch the episodes and, and be like, okay, I like the tone of this, but also to say, it's worth the risk. It's worth taking a shot with these guys. I mean, maybe that's tooting our own horn too much, but we certainly paid him well. But um, I, I really do think it's that. And I see the appeal of that. It's, you know, if you're Adam Sandler and the Safdie brothers, call you up well you know they've done a couple cool little independent films but you know they're it's not they're not um uh steven spielberg yet but they're on their way and you know it's like who wouldn't want to work with a you know young and passionate uh filmmaker whether it's you know greta gerwig or you know a young quentin tarantino whatever it is that's an exciting time to work with people. I think Danny has always had a good sense for that and, and you know, who those people are. And by the way, he is a producer on Pulp Fiction, you know, so like he has good radar, I guess, for what's going to work. One of the things that is just incredible to me about It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia is that here you are like 15 years in, uh, as long as any sitcom has ever been on television and every time a new season starts, I think to myself, well, this can't possibly be good. 
they've done so many stories with these dumb characters. They, they, they've got to be tired. Like, no sh- show is great in season 15. You know what I mean? Like, The Simpsons is all, it, it started being okay around season 10, and it's been okay ever since. Like, some, some episodes are real good. Some episodes are fine. And that's like the high water mark of running forever. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then I watch new episodes of Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I'm like, dang, how come that's good? So here's my question. Why do you still do the show? And what do you have to do to make sure that after all these years, because it's not like the show has changed, you know, it's changed. It has accrued changes over time. But like, it's not like you're doing a crazy new concept every season or something to refresh things. Like, what do you do to, to, to make sure it doesn't just become a tired version of itself? Well, it's a challenge, right? And uh, I don't know that we're always successful. I think, well, to answer your first question of why we keep doing it, um, we still really enjoy each other's company. And uh, FX is still willing to let us do it. So when you have a network that says, hey, here is an opportunity to go create. And we are only doing eight episodes, eight to 10. Actually, FX said eight this year. We would have done 10, but they said eight. So we figure, okay, can we get together for eight episodes and and make them good? Then we should. And then and then just purely from a life standpoint, you know, it, it keeps me home as a parent. Um, you know, there's the benefits of, uh, of that. In terms of how we keep them good, well, that's a challenge. Um, You know, I think sometimes within the last few years, I think we've had maybe more missteps than we had in previous seasons. Uh, I think this season, this 15th season, is stronger than maybe the 13th and 14th because I think we figured out a few, like, oh, let's go back to some basic sort of storytelling principles of, hey, who are these people? What do they want? And, and they really, let's make sure that you believe that they really care about what they want and let's make those wants somewhat relatable. Plus the world just keeps giving us crazy things to talk about and do like, (laughs) you know, when there's this sort of political commentary aspect of our show, which I mean, the, you know, the world, the world just, I don't think it's ever going to stop having some sort of thing that you can talk about and, and, and show back to the audience in a comedic light that they might not have looked at in a comedic way before. Um, I don't know. I think mainly we all, the FX just keeps letting us do it and we all really enjoy each other's company. And, um, you know, as long as we think we can make them good, we'll keep trying, but we'll probably run out of steam. I can't, I don't see a Simpsons run, but uh, let's get at least one more good season. I think is in there. More with Charlie Day still to come when we come back from our break. Charlie has started re-watching Always Sunny episodes, which he hasn't seen in over a decade, and he'll tell me what that's like. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, kid. Your dad tell you about the time he broke Stephen Dorff's nose at the Kids' Choice Awards? <laughs> in Dead Pilot Society, scripts that were developed by studios and networks but were never produced are given the table reads they deserve. When I was a kid, I had to spend my Christmas break filming a PSA about angel dust. So yeah, being a kid sucks sometimes. Presented by Andrew Reich 
and Ben Blacker. Dead Pilot Society, twice a month on MaximumFun.org. You know, the show you like, that hobo with the scarf who lives in a magic dumpster. (laughs) (laughs) Doctor Who? Yeah! It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Charlie Day, star of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia in the new comedy movie, I Want You Back. Let's get back into our conversation. What's it like to watch the show for your podcast? Your, your podcast, do you look, there's a lot of non always sun, not directly always sunny content on your podcast, but yeah. it's theoretically a looking back episode by episode show. Is it, is it harder enjoyable to see yourself doing that job 15 years ago? It's mostly enjoyable. I have a really hard time when I'm in it feeling as though the work is good enough. I think every time we finish an episode, I think, man, we blew it. It doesn't work. It's not as good as it can be. It's not as good as it should be. And then when enough time has passed, I'm able to see it with fresh eyes and I, and I enjoy it. And I I start to understand why the audience (laughs) enjoys it. Um, In the moment, I think I'm, striving for something that's unattainable. And then it's only until that moment has passed and I've moved on that I can look at it and, and say, Oh no, we, we did okay here. I, I, I've been pleasantly surprised to go back and look at the episode and say, no, I I really, I'm enjoying these and I, I, I'm proud of them. Um, you know, occasionally you see moments or aspects of the storytelling that you don't like. And the interesting thing is, Rob and Glenn and I usually agree as to what those moments are where we say, yeah, that one missed the mark for this reason or that. But yeah, for the most part, it's been actually a, a good sort of healthy experience to go back and look at this and, and, and sort of learn what we got right and what we got wrong. Are you happy and proud that this is like, not just a thing that you made with your buddies when you were, you know, 25 or however old you were, but actually, like, oh, wow, I guess this is our magnum opus. This is, like, our life's work. Like, we've done this so long <laughs> that, like, yeah. we'll do lots of other things, but, like, this is our thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, like, sometimes sometimes I wrestle with that a little bit where I'm like, oh, look, I've done all this other stuff. I'm, like, I'm on here promoting, you know – a movie I'm really proud of, but I'm mostly talking about Sonny. Um, so, but then, you know, what is that? That's just ego. You know, I, I think, uh, no, I, I, I'm grateful for everything that Sonny has provided in my life and just, um, I'm not going to complain about it. It's just been a gift. I've enjoyed watching, uh, the four and then five of you on, on television so much for so long. I'm just, I'm just happy. It means a lot to me that you still like each other and want to make a television show together still. I'm like, yeah, that's my guys from television. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to every time we set out to do it, I want to do it really well. And uh every time we finish, I look at it and I say, "Damn, I want to do it better." <laughs> but uh you know, I think um yeah, it's just been such a good good experience and a good creative experience and i don't want to do it poorly so the thing that i wrestle with the most is when i feel as though we've missed the mark with an episode 
it weighs on me for quite a long time and I stress about it and and then I start to say oh, we we need to stop we're not doing as good work and but then I think well that's just quitting if someone says go ahead and try again then you know you you get back out there and you 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 try again but we'll see I, I mean it's got to stop at some point <laughs> 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 That's going to be the pull quote here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Charlie. <laughs> Charlie Day on Always Sunny. It's got to stop. It's got to stop. <laughs> Get me out of this. Well, Charlie Day, I, I enjoyed the movie so much and I've I've loved Always Sunny for for so long. I I really I really admire your work, so I'm very grateful to have you uh take this time to be on Bullseye. It was really nice to get to talk to you. <laughs> Thanks. I, I really enjoyed the conversation and, and I can, you know, I feel your genuine love for the show and I, it's, it's not lost on me. I really appreciate it. I'm, I hope, I hope, uh, you know, next year, season 16, we'll knock your socks off. Charlie Day, his new movie, I Want You Back, is very funny and sweet. You can stream it this week on Amazon. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. I recently got the 311 app, and this is the dorkiest public radioist host thing I've ever done in my life. But now when I walk my dog, if I see abandoned furniture on the sidewalk, I pull out my app and report it. Anyway, if you live in Los Angeles, you can too. Just download that 311 app or call 311. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producer is Jesus Ambrosio. Production fellows at Maximum Fun are Richard Roby and Valerie Moffat. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. He has a collection of it, by the way, on Bandcamp. Uh, which you can buy from him. It's called uh, Search for DJW and Bullseye on Bandcamp, and you'll find it. It's Pay What You Want. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation. It's recorded by the group The Go Team, thanks to them and to their label Memphis Industries for sharing it. Bullseye is also on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. You can follow us in those places. We will share with you all of our interviews. And I think that's it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 